Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports on a global scale. Glad you could join us this week. Uh, It's been a while since we had our last podcast, so it's good to catch up we've got some good guests coming up on the show this week Rand Gatlin our friend from Yahoo Sports investigative reporter we're not going to just talk about Johnny Manziel we are going to give our suggestions on what needs to change with the NCAA and college sports this is a fundamental problem the autographs is just a symptom of the problem there's a bigger problem we'll dig into that with Rand Gatlin on today's show also, our friend Maury Brown from the biz of baseball.com will join me. We'll talk A-Rod. What is up next for A-Rod for Major League Baseball? How does this turn out? We'll give you our thoughts during that conversation. Today, a couple of other notes. You can visit my blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can find our podcast there as well. Follow me on Twitter at SV Radio. Joining me now is our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Uh, just got back from a week of vacation at a resort here in Oregon. It was great, sunny, swim, swimming by the pool, riding bikes, playing tennis, that kind of stuff. So I can't complain. That's good. Yeah, the summertime is good for those things. I am uh, going to be heading to Maui in two weeks. So I'm definitely looking forward to that excursion with my daughter, do some snorkeling, lay on the beach, ride bikes. It's going to be fun. Yeah, Hawaii, you can't can't uh, can't complain about that at all. My uh, My niece just got back from Hawaii and it was a wonderful time, and I've never heard of anybody that doesn't have a wonderful time there. <laughs> yeah, as long as it doesn't pour rain, which yeah. uh, I hope it doesn't. Hope I didn't just jinx that, but uh, <laughs> it's it's a glorious place to be. Let's talk about some uh, headlines in the news recently. First of all, uh, Fox Sports 1 is going to launch this week, and they are going to be a direct competitor to ESPN. This has been months in the making. They've even taken some of ESPN's talent. ESPN has counter-program by hiring people back like Keith Olbermann, who made his return after 16 years to ESPN this past week. What are your thoughts about Fox Sports 1? Are you going to watch? I think I am, and I, I love the whole concept that people aren't just throwing everything to, to ESPN. I like that there's some competition out there. There's some different networks, and I think uh, it's going to be a cool platform for Fox to just, you know, kind of like NBC Sports Channel's kind of done, where they can, they can throw a bunch of stuff on there and get some good talent, some high-level talent that has been at ESPN and other places. And I think it's going to be packaged quite well. They got some good college football games, uh, which is a great, obviously, a great time of year to launch because big time ratings for college football. So it's it's going to be interesting. I will definitely be checking it out. Yeah, one of the things you need to do when you're launching a network like Fox Sports One is you've got to come up with content. So in addition to hiring the talking heads, you've got to have good content that people want to watch. Interesting. This past week, Fox ponying up big, big money to pay for PGA Golf, so the U.S. Open. And other golf events will be on Fox starting in 2015. Fox has never really covered pro golf before, Greg. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, who the talent is, what they do. Do they do things that are a little bit edgier like they've done with football? I'll be interested to see how they cover golf. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. And my, my father-in-law is a big golf guy, and he golfers that really love the game really tune in to hear the personalities, too. I mean, he loves, you know, the NBC guys, Dan Hicks and all that, Johnny Miller. So it'll be interesting to see who they do put on the on the screen for golf and how the golf fans and golf world uh, relates to them. Speaking of golf, did you watch the PGA Championship? Jason Duffner wins. He is the 19th different player in the last 21 majors to win. The only repeat winners in that span for a major, Phil Mickelson and uh, Rory McIlroy. Once again, Tiger Woods goes 0-4-4 this year. Hasn't won a major since 2008, but I was happy for Duffner. He was so close a few years ago. And, uh, you know, he's just a pretty stoic guy, but, uh, I thought he played really well and he wanted, it's not like he, that, uh, you know, anyone lost it. And, and, uh, I just thought Jason Duffner was a good character, uh, to win the PGA championship. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he, he's fun to watch cause he's just so solid and driven and he, you know, he just, he doesn't really fluffs him or gets him, uh, distracted and he had such a great day on Sunday. I mean, his, his approach shots were phenomenal, giving, giving him some nice short putts to win that tournament. But yeah. It was a fun tournament, and like you said, I love how it's been a different winner like pretty much consistently, and that, that just tells me the golf world is getting better and better and better, and there's not just one standout star anymore. Yeah, that's definitely true. I guess Duffner's uh, nickname on tour is Duff Daddy, uh, <laughs> as given to him by Keegan Bradley, fellow golfer who, by the way, uh, really swiped a major from Duffner a few years ago, if you recall, in a playoff. So uh, Duffner gets his first major. We'll see you know, how marketable he may be. He doesn't have much of a personality, at least on the course, uh, behind the scenes. He's supposedly a pretty fun-loving guy. So, you know, who knows uh, what may await Duffner now that he's a major winner. Yeah, it was. Uh, he had one uh, fist pump there when he holed that second shot on, I think it was Saturday or maybe Friday, when he rolled it in. He did a couple of fist pumps. That's about the most I've seen from him out there on the course. Yeah, no kidding. All right, a reminder again, go to sportsbusinessradio.com for everything you need from our blog to our podcast to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Uh, coming up next, Rand Gatlin from Yahoo Sports Investigative Reporter. Again, one of the things we try and do on this show, we don't just rip into things and criticize things. We always offer a solution. We're going to have a solution to how to fix college athletics. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. 
with a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand. We will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Rand Gatlin. We've had him on the show many times before. He's an investigative reporter with Yahoo Sports, one of the best. You can follow him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. That's G-E-T-L-I-N. Rand, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. When I saw the Johnny Manziel story break, I thought if I could have one guy on my show to discuss it that's not involved in it directly, it would be you. You're very close to all of this. First, before we start the interview, you're a journalist now, but you've got an interesting background. You've been on the on the inner circle of college athletics. Why don't you explain that a little bit so people know uh, your angle on this? Yeah, sure. So prior to coming to uh, Yahoo Sports and, and starting to work on primarily in investigative work, um, I went to law school, thought I was going to be a lawyer, had always been interested in sports, and uh, began to work on a consulting company to kind of help kids navigate the path from college to the professional ranks in terms of choosing their professional representation. The concept for me when I got done with law school is I don't want to practice law. I've never fit neatly into professional boxes. And, you know, I want to do something that's meaningful in society, uh, that's something that I can really throw my passion behind. And, and that was it, because you see some of these kids going broke as they head into or as they, as they leave the pros after making so much money while there. And I just couldn't understand why those numbers weren't declining significantly. And the only answer I could come up with was, well, they're just not being educated about this very important issue. And when I started researching it, that was absolutely true. Very few of these kids, if any, are educated in a meaningful way on what it takes to successfully choose your professional representation, those who are going to be stewards of your financial health from now into the future. That's, you know, all wealthy folks have a team of folks around them who help them handle their finances. So long and short of it is uh, I found out very quickly that uh, I, I could pursue more meaningful change in other realms and uh, stumbled into journalism, but I didn't grow up. Uh, in the journalism world. I'm really an outsider who uh, was lucky enough to get an opportunity to do what it is that I'm passionate about, and that is to, you know, in my mind, help folks. In this instance, it's helping folks to understand the truth about the uh, the systems, whether it be the NFL system, the NBA system, uh, the college football or basketball system, what really goes on in these systems, not what the talking points are, not what's fed to us by PR folks, uh, but what really happens in this world, and uh, we've been doing that for a few years now. Well, and your network consists of agents, of executives, of compliance officers, of, you know, it, it's a wide, wide network, and people just don't have access to those types of people. So I think that's interesting. Let's talk about Johnny Manziel because this has been such a hot topic, his allegedly signing autographs for payment um, you know, you talk about education of the athletes. How much are athletes, especially high-profile athletes, Heisman Trophy-winning athletes like Johnny Manziel, who, by the way, is only going to be a sophomore, 
How much are they educated about the do's and don'ts? Here are people who are going to try and approach you and make money off of you. Here are people that may not have your best interest at heart. How much are athletes on the college level educated about these things? Well, here's what I found really troubling in, in you know, my years of research. What you come to understand is when it comes to uh, NCAA rules, don't take money from boosters. Don't receive free meals. Don't, you know, go to games and sit courtside at somebody on somebody else's dime, somebody who's connected to the school. Um, you know, all of that is hammered home. There's no question these kids really understand for the most part what it is that they are and aren't allowed to do in order to maintain their eligibility. Now, uh, on the more important stuff, how do you choose an attorney once you are thrust into a situation where you're about to make $10 million after being on a $1,300 a month, a $1,300 a month stipend? How do you handle that selection process? How do you choose an agent? How do you choose a CPA? How do you choose all of these individuals around you, all of whom you're going to be paying a relatively healthy fee to? Uh, that education is absolutely missing. Now, some schools kind of pretend to do something in that realm, but if you really take a step back and you analyze it, how much time are they spending on this? What kinds of experts are they bringing in to help these kids understand this stuff? When are they beginning these educational programs? That stuff uh, doesn't start, you know, if at all, until generally their their junior or senior year, and then it's it's you know very little time spent on it, and the kids don't learn much. NCAA violations, you know. Would Johnny Manziel, if he did in fact sign these signatures, sign these autographs and, and receive compensation for it, would he have known what he was doing is wrong based on the education provided at A&M? I don't have any doubt in my mind the answer to that is absolutely. I mean I can tell you I have a, a media training and social media training company. Everything is on the record with Rick Buecher who's also uh, a well-known journalist. And 75% of the universities out there do not provide formal media and social media training for their college athletes. You stick them up in front of the media. The cameras are everywhere. They've all got mobile devices where they can tweet whenever they want 24-7. This education isn't being provided. It really is astonishing. And then we are somehow stunned when they fail or falter with Johnny Manziel, you know, a lot of people are, are weighing in now, and some people want to look at it by the letter of the law, and they say, shame on him. He's really uh, put his university, his head coach, his team in a tough position. They may uh, have some penalties levied against them. But then you have people like me and you who say, you know what? There's a bigger issue here, and the bigger issue is the system is broken, and it needs to be fixed. It's outdated. And how do we get to that conversation? Could this become the tipping point? Because Johnny Manziel is such a high-profile athlete. Could we finally see some big changes with the NCAA and, and modernizing their rules? Well, you know what's so interesting is I think if, if we go back to, I think you and I met in 2010, and I think if we go back to that time and we listen to some of our earliest interviews, yeah. Uh, I've maintained the position for, you know, three years running now, much longer, but ever since people actually cared what I had to say about it, I've been saying I think the NCAA is going to be fundamentally different than it is today in three to five years. Well, we're at year three, and it looks a heck of a lot different today than it did back then, at least in terms of people, the discussion that's being had publicly, right? We've got people uh, discussing now this NCAA Accountability Act in response to the Penn State situation. You've got the University of Miami situation that people are examining, saying, well, wait a second, what really happened here? Uh, and obviously the details of that story lend itself to people taking a step back and making moral determinations about whether this is right or wrong. But then you get to Johnny Manziel today. You know, 
It's a real simple situation. He's being accused of signing autographs for compensation. Now, it has not been proven that he received compensation yet, so you know, allow that to play out. But let's assume for the sake of this discussion that this player, you know, did, that, that a player signed an autograph and was compensated for it. What's wrong with that? Why is that a problem? Should that rule continue to be in place? Is it just or unjust? And that's the role of policymakers. And I think, you know, generally, prior to coming into investigative journalism, I also worked with a public policy organization. And one of the things that we always used to take a step back and examine is, okay, well, here are these rules. And here are all these reports on these violations of these rules. But are these rules just? Do they make sense? Are they serving society? In this case, does this rule serve student-athletes? Because that's what they say the enterprise is about. Does saying Johnny Manziel cannot sign autographs for compensation serve student-athletes countrywide? And I'm not sure any intelligent person I've spoken to has been able to give me a cogent argument for why it is uh, in the athlete's best interest to deprive them of this revenue-generating opportunity. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think ultimately when you look at the situation, we are absolutely at a tipping point for the NCAA. This is not the first time we've had a discussion about whether this system makes any sense. And we've now been doing this for, for a while, some longer than others, but certainly it's been very intense since the summer of 2010 when all these NCAA scandals started breaking with UNC and Ohio State and then Miami, and it was a follow-up from USC, which was reported back in 06. And there were all of these at Oregon, right? I mean, you go on and on and on, and it's just been a near-constant onslaught of issues to examine. Where do we come down on this line? And, uh, you know, I think we go through this for another two years. A couple more stories come out that, uh, you know, expose some other aspects of uh, NCAA policymaking and that, you know, people may have issues with. And, and I think, you know, ultimately that system is unsustainable. It will change fundamentally. It's just a matter of when. Here's what I would do if I were uh, trying to fix this system. Tell me what you think of these ideas. Number one, and, and you and I have talked about this, there needs to be some sort of a player's union. Pro sports has player's unions that protects their best interests, that can educate them. College athletes, it's about time now. We're dealing with a multi-billion dollar industry. They need some sort of a player's union. The other thing I would do, because if you're part of a player's union on the pro level, your likeness can be licensed out for video games and other things, but you also get a check for when your likeness is being used. How about if Johnny Manziel or any college athlete, you know, let's come up with a 50-50 split or some kind of split where part of it gets kicked to the NCAA, part of it gets kicked to the union, I guess, and then the other remaining amount goes to you in your pocket. And it can either be in an account that you can access when you're done with your college career or you can access it right away. But why shouldn't the player share in the profits of his or her own likeness being utilized. You know, you probably saw this. Jay Billis from ESPN did an interesting exercise recently online where he went to the NCAA store online, typed in Johnny Manziel. Now, the NCAA will tell you that uh, names are not on the back of the uniforms. This is just a generic uniform. But if you go to the search box at NCAA.com and type in Johnny Manziel, the number two Texas A&M jersey comes up. He went on and on with people uh, who are still playing and people who are suspended. And every time that person's jersey came up. So the joke that the correlation between this generic jersey is the NCAA would have you believe and that person's actual name 
Come on. People aren't that dumb. It, look, I like the NCAA as far as I like some of the people that work there. I have friends that work there. I feel badly for them because I think they're uh, way understaffed and they have like a tidal wave of uh, different problems that they're trying to deal with. But, geez, can it change? The suggestions I just made, are they so hard to implement? Well, so, so tongue to unpackage there, and I'll start with the, the, the point that I think, you know, is, is – I guess most funny, it makes me laugh, is this notion that, you know, and I see a lot of smart people, journalists who, you know, I consider smart people generally. They talk about this. They say, well, it's not about uh, the the name on the back of the jersey. It's the the name on the front. Okay, well, explain to me why you continue every year to change numbers on these jerseys to the most famous players that are on that team at that time and sell them as widely as you possibly can. If it's about the name on the back of the jersey, make all numbers zero, never put a player name on it, and have it be Aggies across the back, always in all cases. That's not the way it works. There's a reason why when you search shopncaasports.com, you type in Manziel, a bunch of number two Texas A&M jerseys pop up in all kinds of different color variations. Those are Adidas jerseys. Adidas has a sponsorship deal with the school. Everyone's making money except for the kids, and they come up with these asinine arguments to try and convince us that something that is clearly reality is not so. You know, it's really, uh, at the end of the day, I think should be at least offensive to people because they, they really do feel as if we are that stupid, as if we're going to buy those arguments. You know, as to your question about a union, I think it's an absolute no-brainer. I'm leery of unions uh, once you've gotten through the struggle phase of, you know, you've got all these schools, all of these entities, that, that have an incentive to keep these kids making less money than they are today because it's more money for them. So they're, the kids need to figure out a way to collectively bargain for better rights. However, you know, I think at some point unions can become detrimental to a cause, but uh, we're certainly not there now. You know, they need something, and, and a union is the only conceivable entity I could think of that can fight for those rights. In terms of creating a, uh, you know, a, a fund, for these players to receive that which they create in terms of the, the profits that they are, are uh, responsible for in a proportionate share. I think that's also a no-brainer. You know, all of these kids should receive compensation for jersey sales. All of these kids should receive compensation for ticket sales. How much? You know, that's between them and the schools. But as of right now, this notion that a scholarship is enough and, uh, you know, you should just accept it and be happy, it's asinine as well. Uh, a kid like Johnny Manziel is worth far more than the sixty or seventy thousand dollars at the top that they can claim to give this kid a year in, you know, swag, Adidas pants and shoes, and access to these awesome facilities and you know, all these things. That's great. But I work at Yahoo. I have access to great facilities. I have access to some of the top talent in the world, and I would never in my life settle for them or any other organization telling me, "Listen, your compensation is going to be capped." at X number of dollars for the next five years because we're giving you an education in the world of journalism and we're providing with these awesome facilities and you should just be happy about it. But we are going to make $5 million a year. Don't worry about it. It's the way things are. You know, that's not the way the world works. Thankfully, we live in in a capitalist society. When you do awesome work, you're compensated for doing so. And I really personally appreciate that system. I think it leads to some of the most incredible innovation uh, you know, in the world. And also, obviously, there's a, a lot of freedom associated with uh, the ability to become socially mobile, upwardly mobile when, you know, maybe you didn't start uh, in that kind of a world. Here in, in sports, a lot of these kids come from nothing. 
So this is their opportunity during their prime in college. For instance, I'll give you a player. Terrence Whitehead from the University of Oregon. Fantastic player during his college years. Had a ton of value. People were buying his jerseys. People were buying tickets to come see his games, et cetera. He didn't pan out in the NFL as he thought he would. And so his market value peaked while he was in college. Well, his ability to capitalize on the money that he generated while in college was artificially depressed and capped by this organization. And they told him that it was in his best interest. Well, talk to him today. Ask him if it was in his best interest to have his most profitable days thus far capped artificially by an organization where the executives were all making millions of dollars while he was told, take this education and accept it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's an argument to be made that uh, they're depriving the vast majority of these kids. When they say, you know, 99% of our kids are going to go pro in something other than sports or whatever the figure is, that may be true, but that means that you are artificially depressing the 99% earning ability while they're in, arguably for a lot of these people, their most marketable years. So, you know, why is that just? Why is that okay? And, you know, I think we know, we know the answer from a personal standpoint. I certainly don't think it's just. You don't think it's just. A lot of folks don't think it's just. Yet, this is the system we have. And until it changes, we're going to continue to have these discussions. Just a few minutes left with Rand Gatlin, investigative reporter for Yahoo Sports. Follow him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. Rand, if you had a chance to see the pictures like I did of the University of Oregon's new football training facility. Uh, it, it is mind-blowing. It is absolutely stunning. It is a work of art. Um, I've never seen anything like it, even in pictures. When you're talking about Ferrari leather on the chairs in the film room, uh, you've got you know ventilated lockers. You've got uh, Italian hardwood floors in the weight room. I mean – when we're talking about college athletics and amateur athletics, this is where I have to laugh. When you're looking at a multi-billion dollar industry, you're looking at facilities like that. And God bless him. You know, Phil Knight, uh, founder of Nike, donated that money. And, you know, it, it, that's they did it the right way. There's no shadiness about it. But it just doesn't juxtapose with the picture of nonprofit NCAA amateur athletics, and then you've got multi-billion dollar TV contracts and state-of-the-art, you know, multi-million dollar training facilities. We can't have the facade anymore of this is amateur athletics. So the question to you is, and I know we've talked about it in this conversation, when do you think we might see the day where uh, it changes? And I've always said I think the trigger to the change ultimately will come when the government says, you know what, NCAA? We're taking away your tax-exempt status. You're not a nonprofit anymore. Right. I, you know, I think, obviously, uh, there are degrees of change, right? And I think in terms of when will we see it fundamentally change, I think that moment is upon us. I think we're watching it happen in real time. Uh, it's just such a surreal experience because, again, three years ago, people thought we were nuts to say, look, if you just tell the truth about this, about this system comprehensively enough, and repetitively enough, people will be forced to face the realities of the situation. And that is exactly what has occurred. There's been an unbelievable amount of investigative reporting of, of all shades. I mean, there's great work done uh, by, you know, Wall Street Journal on, uh, for instance, when they were talking about Aaron Hernandez's attorney. And then so there was this discussion about, well, is it fair that, uh, you know, students, student athletes should be deprived of the ability to obtain counsel? Then you find out, well, the NCAA is okay with that sort of in this situation. 
right? But it's not written into their rules. And, and so it, there have been all of these various issues examined that, you know, the investigations that I mentioned earlier, all this stuff. And, and now we're at a point today where people are looking at the totality of it and whether they recognize uh, the pieces of it on a granular basis, meaning they think about each specific instance and weave that together, or it's just a general feeling. Overwhelmingly, you look on Twitter, which I know can be an echo chamber, but certainly on Twitter, the overwhelming sentiment is amateurism is ridiculous. This needs to change. And once public perception reaches a crescendo, change comes because it, it, it's something that has to occur to quiet the masses. Now, what that change will entail immediately, it will, it will entail whatever it is that the powers that be can figure out that will quell the masses just enough for them to continue making money hand over fist. You know, that's it. They're running businesses. So these are very smart people. You know, you can liken it to an individual at the helm of an organization and knows that uh, a corporate raider is coming to, to force them out, you know, have a proxy vote and have the board vote this person out. They're not going to step down on their own. They're going to sit up there and collect a paycheck as long as and hold on to power as long as humanly possible. You're going to have to force them out. Same situation with these people that run the NCAA. No one's taken away these $1.6 million jobs for administrators. Nobody's taken away these $5 million a year salaries for these coaches. That's here to stay. The only question is, how are we now going to compensate these players? Because it is very clear that they also generate significant value in this market, and they deserve to see a share of those profits. How that will look, we'll see. But I think, you know, I think significant changes upon us. It's about time. And it's interesting. Uh, it really is an interesting issue. And I think, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on this time and recognize this was a revolutionary phase in the process of uh, providing these young men and women rights uh, within, you know, whatever this college athletic system looks like uh, down the road. But it's, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly a movement that uh, I think is, is just. I think it's proper for us to be dis- discussing these things. And I'm thankful that the public cares enough about these issues for folks like you and myself to do this kind of work and discuss these important issues and figure out, you know, where should we go? Well, and will Ed O'Bannon be seen 20 years from now as the Kurt Flood of his era, which is a conversation for another day because we've got to wrap. But, uh, you know, if players finally get compensated for their likenesses, then uh, that will have been a, a sea of change for college athletics. Rand Gatlin, investigative reporter, Yahoo Sports. Follow him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. Rand, always appreciate your insight. Always enjoy our conversations, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes, 
and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Maury Brown from thebizofbaseball.com. No one covers the business of baseball like Maury does. You can follow him on Twitter at uh, bizballmaury. Great follow on Twitter. Maury, how are you? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you today? I'm doing well. I know you've been very, very busy over the last few weeks, especially with all of the biogenesis going on in the baseball world. Just give me your overall thoughts on the suspensions, how they were handled by Major League Baseball, and then we'll get into some of the specifics. Well, I mean, it's a difficult topic. I mean, we've never seen this many suspensions go down at the same time, and it really kind of speaks to um, baseball's willingness to try and really go to the ends of the earth to try and investigate things. Um, it's created, I think, a, a, a lot of problems, though, because of the ambiguity around that drug agreement with the players. It does not really specify how uh, players suspended under investigation differ from how players are suspended when they um, fail drug tests. And this has created all kinds of problems, whether it's the Ryan Braun suspension, which he took, or Alex Rodriguez's situation, which is astronomical in the sense that a player that's never tested positive is now going to go basically from zero to 211 games, and it just doesn't fall within the drug agreement. Um, there are some issues around that. I think the other players said, you know, it's just better to to take the penalty now and not have to deal with it next year. Um, it impacts some of the races. And so, I, I mean, it, it is a major situation for the league. It's, it's something that I'm sure that they'd like to avoid. But like they've said, you know, we've got to act when we get information, and they're acting upon it. Let's zero in on A-Rod. That's what most everyone else is doing, obviously Major League Baseball doing so as well. There's the letter of the law, and then there's the commissioner's powers. As far as you know, what do the commissioner's powers encompass? Can he overrule anything and just say we're going from zero to 211? Or is the players' union and A-Rod's lawyers going to be able to say this is way too much? This isn't going from, you know, you can't go from zero to 211. you got to go from zero to 50. Yeah, and I think it's probably going to be the latter, although I don't think that, you know, the league could try and do something else. I mean, Celic still has this very broad-reaching best interest of baseball clause in the collective bargaining agreement. We've heard that mentioned that they were going to ban him for life, then they, you know, right toward the 11th hour and kind of backed away from that. We got to the 211 games, which is basically the rest of the 2013 season of all of 2014. And, you know, and that's, that's the issue at hand. I mean, once again, the letter of the law would say, well, it's 50 games. And I'm sure that that's the argument. This is the thing that's kind of interesting in this whole thing, Brian, to me, is that when asked directly uh, before his first game in Chicago whether uh, he'd actually used any of these substances, he dodged the question. And the way that the Players Association is saying that he, they believe that the commissioner has basically overstepped his boundaries of the collective bargaining agreement, I think that this whole grievance process is really not about guilt or innocence, but really whether 
the you know the punishment fits the crime, and and that's the problem at hand. That the arbitrator is going to have a heck of a time with this thing. I'm trying to say, well, you know, you got rights to go ahead and do this. Uh, you know, I wrote about this today. I think that what's really going to happen is, is he's going to say, look, you guys really agreed upon this, you know, framework. You guys are going to just have to come up with something different the next time. You, you know, my hands are tied on this. This is kind of the way you guys agreed to it. Um, if it's something else, if they get into a deal where they negotiate, I, I, I can hardly see it going 211 games. It will have to come down from that. It's just how far down that goes. 50 seems like within the drug agreement, but if it goes higher, I just can't see that many games. It just doesn't seem plausible. Maury Brown from the biz of baseball.com is joining us. Maury, uh, with A-Rod, part of what Bud Selig in Major League Baseball seems to be upset about is they say that he's uh, obstructed the investigation. So he wasn't cooperative like the other 12 players were. Do you think that has a part in the 211 games? And can Major League Baseball justify that because he got that 211 is because this isn't just about a drug test. It's about him not cooperating with the investigation. Well, I'm sure that that's where it's coming from. I think that the word that they used in the press release was they were frustrated. You know, they had frustrated the investigation. But I find it hard to believe that uh, any fine lawyer that Alex Rodriguez has hired, and I'm sure he's got an army of them, doesn't go, look what Melky Cabrera did. And Melky Cabrera, for those that don't remember, went out and created a phony website. So in case he got caught, he could say, well, I purchased it through this website, and therefore I'm not held accountable for that. It's their fault. You know, I mean, if if that guy gets a 50-game suspension and then this guy is going to get tagged with this, you know, massive amount because of that, I mean, come on. I, it's just not playing by the same set of rules on a number of things. Now, it may be a cumulative thing. They may say, well, that's part of it. Well, there's also this thing where you try to purchase, you know, basically evidence to destroy it. You know, there's the fact that you've lied to us in other investigations. I just don't think that they like him for a number of things, whether it's been, you know, finding him in poker games, whether it's just been his attitude as a Yankee. I don't know what it is, but they're really going after him hard. And the fact that he's baseball's highest paid player, whether he is banned for life or not, if it goes that 211 games, his career is over. I mean, I just can't see how he plays these games that he's playing right now may be the very last games that he plays in a major league baseball uniform. Well, I agree. You look at his age, he's 38. And also what team is going to want to take him on as a headache? Cause you know that if he were to come back after that 211 games or whatever suspension he has, I just don't see a team being willing to take on the circus that comes with a rod. And, you know, you get the sense Maury, that, with Alex Rodriguez, this is his last stand, and it's about protecting his money, frankly, because he's probably going to need some money to pay those lawyers that you talked about, and he's not going to get anything remotely resembling a paycheck like the one he has coming to him. He's not uh, viable as an endorser. His brand is tainted forever. He probably doesn't have any opportunities coming to him post-career as far as coaching or uh, Hall of Fame opportunities. Those are all out the window, right? Yeah, I would have to think so. I mean, this is a problem with him. I mean, he really has never endeared himself to begin with. He's just not a very, you know, likable player. He, he he doesn't do anything, you know, he doesn't come across, I, I will compare him in some ways to Barry Bonds. You know, Barry Bonds just seemed to come across very abrasive. With Alex Rodriguez, it's not that he's abrasive. He always seems to be talking out of, you know, both sides of his mouth, I think, is the way that a lot of people have portrayed him. And, and that's the problem. And I mean, you know, wherever this lands, let's say, so let's just say for all intents and purposes, 
it's less than 211 games. I don't see how the Yankees don't release him. And he's got two bad hits. You know, he's come back right now. I mean, we saw this with Barry Bonds, right? I mean, Barry Bonds, he was like, I'm not retiring. You know, I'm the home run king. I've still got this high on base percentage. You know, he still had people pitching around him, but nobody picked him up. And he never, he never said he was retired. And I think that that could very well happen with Alex Rodriguez. I think that's, that he'll get released. And then it'll be a matter of nobody can either afford him or nobody wants to take on the baggage or both. And that's the real problem for him. So this right now, you said his last stand, this is it, and, and figuratively and possibly literally. So let's talk about the, the relationship with the Yankees because, you know, if they did release him, they're still going to be on the hook for paying him minus the 211 or whatever the amount is that, uh, of the suspension. So they're still going to owe him some money. Are they willing to just eat that money? Yeah, I think they just look at it as a sunk cost. I mean, it, you know, is it a ton of money? I mean, it's astronomically so. But it's the Yankees, you know, and they have this new relationship basically with Fox. And, you know, there's plenty of money. I think that they would figure out a way to absorb that. Um, it will allow them to quickly get under the $189 million luxury tax threshold, which is something that they're very much focused on, helps them reach that much sooner. Um, you know, and then they'll be able to ramp back up in 2015, I think is the, is the logical thinking that of what they'll do. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is one of those things to where it's, it's a lot of money, but is it worth a headache? I mean, even if he was, uh, the all, you know, an all-star player and basically the caliber that he has been, and even Brian Cashman said he's not that guy anymore. You know, you're overpaying for undervalued talent and the baggage that goes along with it. And I just don't think it's worth it at this point. It's got to be a nightmare for Major League Baseball and for the Yankees that here the guy who was suspended 211 games is able to get on the field and play, and the circus surrounds him before the appeal process takes place. I, I wonder if that will change in the future. I mean, I've said if baseball or, frankly, any league, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, or anyone, there's got to be at most a two-strike-and-you're-out policy, and if you're suspended – your contract should be voided. You shouldn't be able to be like Ryan Braun where you take a $3 million penalty this year, but you come back to $100 million remaining on your contract. That certainly doesn't give someone less incentive to go out and cheat, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you go back to Milky Cabrera again. I mean, look what happened with him. Hey, you guys, you caught me. Hey, he does the suspension. He hits free agency, and he actually got a raise when he went over to the Blue Jays. I mean, that that is certainly uh, – it's a dynamic in the market around Major League Baseball, which shows that teams want to be competitive. They believe that even without the performance-enhancing drugs, Cabrera could add to it. But, I mean, the, the question about voiding contracts or doing that, I don't think that you're going to see a, a major leap like that. But it's the real ambiguity around this thing. And the thing that my uh, executive director, Michael Wiener, from the Major League Baseball Players Association said was, you know, this idea that we're supposed to have this basically confidential, you know, really, there was a clause in the, in the CBA that said, well, if the media has already got a hold of this, we're just going to run with it, and we can go ahead and suspend him before the grievance process. So, of course, you had leaks run amok. It was very much a concern. This is a, a chief concern of the Players Association around all these leaks. And it just created a circus atmosphere if you had clear guidelines around what would happen during an investigation, just like you have for those that test positive in it as part of the drug program, then all this goes away. It's this ambiguity and this subjectiveness that creates all of this, you know, acrimony and problems that we have in the media right now. 
they have to get to that before they can do anything. That would stop all of this. No one would know. No one would know whether Alex Rodriguez was really going to be suspended or not because it would all have been behind closed doors. So I see that as a big, big problem with the league right now. They're going to have to address that. And you know that the Players Association is going to have that front and center if they decide to open up the collective bargaining agreement and try and reach, A, the league wants stiffer penalties, and B, I think the Players Association has grave concerns about whether the policy can even work under this you know, weight of these leaks and whatnot that have gone on. You talk about leaks. Isn't this process, this appeal process, I mean, this is going to open up a lot of wounds from Major League Baseball, from the Yankees, from A-Rod. You know, it's hard to keep a lid on things like this. I think this is going to be a very public process. You almost It's almost remarkable to me, Maury, that this couldn't be worked out somewhere behind closed doors so those three entities wouldn't have those that dirty laundry aired through the media because you know it's going to get out. Well, and so that's the issue. I mean, they wanted to have this done. And so everybody, of course, was like, what, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, what's really happening here is, you know, kind of like, you know, the, you know, the old days where it's like you go to the criminal that's locked behind global doors and you say, sign this piece of paper and say you're guilty and we won't stick you in the gulag. You know, it was one of these situations to where, you know, there's this feeling that there's this pressure to, you know, basically uh, negotiate a deal and accept the penalty so that we don't have this grievance process. But, I mean, if the grievance process is done the way that it's written out in the drug agreement and there's confidentiality and there are no leaks, then this you don't have that happen. You don't have the dirty laundry come out. It's just basically presented to uh, basically Major League Baseball presents it to A-Rod and his lawyers, and they make their case to the arbitrator, and it's just the final outcome that you see. Well, that's the problem, and you don't see that. But the league, right up at the last second, A-Rod was willing to take the penalty but it was that, hey, man, it's his first strike. You can give him 50 games, but you want to go for this 211, we're going to have problems with this. And that's where the league balked and said, forget it, we're not going to negotiate with you anymore. That's the problem. Once again, the ambiguity around the way that these are these suspensions are being doled out is, I think, at the cornerstone of the whole problem around this situation. So if you're A-Rod's lawyers and you're making a case for him, A, you're going to talk about the leak and the leaks, and that was unfair. B, you're going to talk about you're going from 0 to 211. It should be 0 to 50 at the most because you've uh, never tested positive for uh, performance-enhancing drugs. What else are you going to throw out there on the table if you're A-Rod's lawyers? Well, you're going to talk about, you know, the credibility of Tony Bosch, you know, the head of uh, biogenesis. I mean, you know, the league basically said, well, we'll take care of your legal fees and we'll try and do whatever we can to prevent the, you know, the feds from investigating you. I mean, they're going to go, look, of course the guys, there's a credibility issue here, people. They're going to go, look, there's a credibility problem with this guy. You know, he's willing to take payments from the league to basically allow this sort of thing to happen. That I'm sure is going to come up. But the problem, of course, with that is you got these other players that all went, you know what, you got me. And at the same time, there are other people involved in this. There are apparently uh, text messages, emails, phone records. I mean, it's it's going to be... Very difficult to fight it. They're going to try and go at it probably from a credibility perspective, but it'll be really interesting based upon the other evidence in this thing as to just how tightly connected to Tony Bosch A-Rod was. There was one report that only Tony Bosch would administer this stuff to him directly, so they had a personal relationship much like Brian McNamee did with Roger Clemens. So, I mean, it's it's 
It's ugly. It's the only word that anybody can conjure up with this thing. It's just all bad for baseball. It's not good for, I think, for anybody. Even the winners will come out losers in this situation. Well, the one thing I do give baseball a lot of credit for is they've realized they've got to take several steps backwards to take some steps forward. And I also commend the Players Association because for the first time, Maury, it seems like I'm hearing players and leadership in the Players Association saying, yes, we want to put an end to performance-enhancing drugs once and for all. It used to be players protected their own, and you know they'd never uh, come down on a guy. But it seems like the tenor against Ryan Braun and especially against A-Rod has changed, and players really want to see the sport cleaned up once and for all. Yeah, and this is really, I think, the biggest story out of this whole thing. You know, there's a lot of people, I think, that look at this as being a situation to where the, you know, the leadership, what would, what would Marvin Miller have done differently or what would Donald Fear have done differently than Michael Weiner? But I don't think that it's really about that. It's about the constituency. It's about the players, which the union represents. They have changed and the leadership is basically supporting it. And once again, going back to Michael Weiner's statement after the biogenesis suspensions, he said that they were very much going to enforce and, and approve of the discipline around those that were guilty. They were fully behind that. The issue they have, of course, is how it's basically being implemented. And that's the problem they have. But, I mean, you listen to the players now. you got a couple of them out there um, saying, you know, hey, one strike and you're out. And that's the way, you know, that's a significant shift from where we were, say, during the Mitchell investigation. So, I mean, yeah, it's a major shift in, in the players. They realize that it's money out of their, you know, food out of their mouth, money out of their contracts. When some guy cheats, gets, you know, all-star bonuses or some big contract is potentially moving those players out of the salaries that they deserve. There's a limited amount of money, and when some player that's cheating is getting more than others, you know, that that really has started to sick in the craw of the rank and file. Well, and you brought up two great examples earlier in the conversation with Ryan Braun, who, you know, gets a ton of money, still has $100 million coming to him when he returns from his suspension, and Moki Cabrera, who actually got a raise after it was discovered that he had taken PED. So, again, there's got to be less incentive. You've got to be scared if you're a pro athlete to even think about using performance enhancing drugs instead of looking at it and saying, you know what, I'm in a free agent year. I could really use that boost in production and maybe I'll get a higher contract as a, as a result. I'm going to take this stuff. That thought has to not enter your mind if you know the penalty is stiff enough and it's really risk everything for it. Yeah. And this is where it gets really difficult, right? I mean, you could say, you know, well, then do the owners then collude to keep a guy like that from not getting a contract? I mean, that would just, the word collusion in baseball, I mean, you want to talk about something that raised the hair on the back of the neck of the Players Association, it's that word. And, you know, I don't know how you would do that. I mean, if you void the contract and they're coming up for free agency, it's really, you know, whatever the market will bear. And if there's somebody out there stupid enough to go out there and do it, then somebody's going to be stupid enough. Or they could say that they're not being stupid, that at the end of the day, fans are really more concerned about their team winning. And this is the overall problem. I mean, as long as the money continues to be this big, and as long as there is a hyper-competitive space, and you want that, right? You want to have your team trying to be the most competitive it can be. This problem is always going to be there. I used a really bad analogy at one point, but I'll bring it up again. It's like the death penalty, right? I mean, you would think that if you implemented, that's the, the, the most 
extreme penalty you can offer in society. And yet we still have capital murder, right? I mean, it doesn't really truly stop. You hope that it does. It's a bad example, but I mean, I don't know if you'll ever get to the point where there isn't some guy out there going, you know, if I can just get around the system, and that's the larger problem, right? How did these guys skirt the drug testing for all these years, you know, and get around it? Why weren't they just caught outright? If they figure there's a way and there's a loophole, then they'll probably do it. They'll probably always be somebody willing to take that risk. Well, and you always know there's another Tony Bosch just around the corner who is going to peddle this stuff to the players. So, you know, the players really have to take the onus on themselves to say no, because I don't see the Tony Boshes of the world going away anytime soon. No, I mean, you know, whether it's Victor Conte or whether it's Tony Bosch or whether it's, you know, others. I mean, look, at the guy was operating out of some small strip mall. I mean, you know, and and, and, and that's the other thing about this. I mean, you know, there are anti-aging clinics all over the country. Just because it's banned in baseball doesn't mean that society can't get on the HGH bandwagon. So it makes it very easy and very enticing, you know, if some guy, some intermediary, which it sounds like most of this has come through an intermediary from the ACEs network, from Seth, uh, from the Levinson brothers, you know, if it's something like that, it becomes very hard to say, you know, let's go check this out. If there's some guy that tells you to do that. Um, yeah, I think you're always going to see that. And I find it, you know, to be a shame and, you know, and, and like I said, but I think that, you know, this isn't going to be the last one. They may be able to stem the flow, but I don't think this is the last PED scandal that we see. Um, in baseball or potentially in other sports. Always terrific insight from Maury Brown from the biz of baseball.com. Follow him on Twitter at bizballmory. Maury, thanks so much, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thank you, Brian. Have yourself a good day. You too. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. All right, we're back to wrap up another edition of Sports Business Radio. Again, you can find everything you need about us at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. I'm joined once again by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, uh, football season coming up and, uh, you know, so many storylines off the field in the NFL this year and in college football for that matter. So it's going to be interesting to see you know, how those play out. But the one thing I expect is people seem to be salivating once again for the start of college and NFL season. And uh, football will be popular once again. 
Yeah, it's just it, it is king. I mean, you just this time of year, I just start getting pumped and excited, and they throw the preseason games on TV, which kind of tease you because it's not really the full spectrum of the game. But uh, yeah, it's fun and exciting time of year, and I'm uh, definitely looking forward to it. Uh, who do you like in the NFL this year? <laughs> I'm a homer. I'm a Seahawks guy through and through, so I'm going to go Seahawks, and I think they actually are going to be right up there with San Francisco in the division for sure. So I'm excited to see Russell and the new wideouts they got, and. Uh, See how they put the team together this year. Yeah, the other thing that will be interesting for those of us in the uh, Oregon area is to see how Chip Kelly does with the Philadelphia Eagles. Does he run a similar offense to what he ran at Oregon, that high-paced offense, or does he run something different? If he does run a high-powered offense, what does that look like on the NFL stage? I'm interested to see how Chip Kelly uh, translates to the NFL. Very much so, and I was watching that uh, the game they played against New England this last week of the preseason game, and I know ESPN was highlighting the time of uh, between snaps that so they were trying to do the, what they did with Oregon and see how long it took them to snap it. And I saw a little bit of hurry up, but it wasn't definitely not like the uh, pace of Oregon because I know the officials don't put the ball down quite as quick in the NFL. So uh, another story this week that I saw, LeBron James uh, passed on being the head of the NBA Players Association. You know, I think that's a good call. I think, you know, LeBron's a bright enough guy, but he's got so much going on. Um, I don't know that he would be the right fit for that role, I think he'd find that it was very demanding on his time. They're still looking for an executive director to replace Billy Hunter. So, you know, I don't know that he would have been the right fit, not to say that he couldn't do the job. I just think he would have found out after he took that job that, wow, this is probably a lot more than I signed up for. So from his perspective, probably the right thing to do to pass on that opportunity. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good choice, too. And, I mean, like you said, he's he's so busy with just the game itself and then all the endorsements and the other things he's doing. That would be, uh, you know, that's pretty, pretty much a full-time job in itself. So I can't imagine having a player do it, especially one of his caliber. Well, and you're trying to three-peat here. You're trying to do what really no one else of this era other than Michael Jordan has done. Larry Bird didn't do it. Magic Johnson didn't do it. If LeBron can three-peat with the Heat... Now that really cements his legacy, not that his legacy isn't cemented already, but you're you're in rarefied air. And if I'm him, I'm focusing more on three-peating than I am with trying to fix the NBA Players Association. Yeah, for sure. And that that's a big goal, I'm sure, for him. And then it'll be interesting to see, too, is he going to stay with Miami? Is he going to move on? Uh, what his future holds after the season? Have you seen the new DirecTV commercial with the Manning brothers, Peyton and Eli, where they're... Uh, talking about watching NFL games on your phone, and they've got the crazy 70s hair. I think it is a brilliant spot, and it shows us once again, as I tweeted out at SB Radio, why the Manning brothers are so popular. Two days after they posted that on YouTube, 5 million views for the commercial. I thought it was very, very funny, and a great message by DirecTV. They're trying to get people to watch DirecTV on their mobile devices doing it in a corny rap song by the Manning Brothers. I find myself singing that song as dorky as that sounds uh, quite often. No, it's very true. It's a catchy thing, and DirecTV did a great job with them. And like you said, Manning Brothers are just they're just funny to watch together on TV. It's like when you just see them together, you start to, to, to laugh because it's just their chemistry is hilarious. And it's funny that they're brothers and that they're it's just it's a battle on the football field, and then it's the fun in the commercial uh, studio. I love it. Yeah, I just think it's great that Peyton Manning had such a great renaissance last year with Denver because he's so important to the marketing of the league. Frankly, uh, if I'm going to pick one athlete in all of sports to promote my brand, Peyton Manning is probably that person. So to have him out there having fun again and doing fun spots like the direct TV spot, I thought that was great. 
Yeah, it's great. And I love when the NFL and, and a company like DirecTV finds such a great marketing tool and they, they use it to its max, and it's great to see. All right, a lot of thank yous on the show this week. Brian Griggs, our executive producer, Josh Blank, and Doug Zanger, a podcast reminder. You can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com, and you can have our show downloaded to your mobile device every single week. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at SB Radio. Griggs, how do people follow you on Twitter? Grizzle 222 Grizzle 222 For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. I'm waking up to ash and dust. I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust. I'm breathing in the chemicals. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215.